This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. Over the course of the past year on PreserveCast, we've explored several crossovers between heritage preservation and entertainment, with a particular focus on the BBC Farm series. And this week's episode is a further dive into this concept with Nigel Hetherington, the founder of Past Preservers, a firm dedicated to that very work of connecting experts with media. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast. And today, we're really excited to be talking with Nigel Hetherington, who is both the founder and owner of Past Preservers. Um, We're going to be talking all about what that company and what his work is all about. Um, But before we jump into the work of the company itself, um, which is unique, um, we love to get to know our guests. So, Nigel, um, where did you grow up? And I suppose, when did you get so interested in history? I mean, obviously, you've made it a uh, a lifetime's work. Um, where did it all start for you? Hi there. Well, I grew up where I am now um, in the Lake District in Cumbria, um, which is a, a very beautiful um, place of the part of the world, uh, mainly known for its natural history rather than um, its history, but it has a strong historical connections as well. Um, Hadrian's Wall, of course, runs through the, the top of the county. Uh, we have a lot of Roman um, settlements uh, in the county as well. Um, so in a way, I was surrounded by history and nature um, when I was growing up here. And I was always interested in history, but I had a, say, a skill that I was very good in mathematics when I was at school. Um, so I was pushed to take those subjects. So that's what I ended up doing initially. I ended up doing archaeology. Uh, um, sorry, I ended up doing accountancy. Then I went into archaeology. Um, but I also remember one of the first, my sort of most treasured books was a, a copy of um, a book on Egypt that was given to me by um, some elderly aunts, um, which, you know, I, I still have and, and whatever. So I was always really interested, particularly in Egypt, but also in, in, in history generally. And so what's the first job in the field then? Where do you go from passion, interest, education to... Uh, excavation, or what was the what was the first job in history and preservation? Oh, the first job was not done until I was well. Literally, I went back to university at thirty five, so I was an accountant for fifteen years. So I had no involvement in the history world at all. Um, I mean, I read and, and watched films and documentaries and that kind of thing, but I didn't have any involvement. It was really a trip to Egypt in ninety seven that sparked the interest again um, and really got me involved in studying. I took a part-time course, which then led to a full-time university um, degree at the University College of London at the Institute of Archaeology, where I studied a BA in Egyptian archaeology and then moved on for heritage MA. And then I was offered, um, actually, we did fieldwork then as part of that um, course, you do fieldwork. So that was my first experience of doing real archaeology and digging. We did a field school um, a Roman site um, in UK um, called Barkham. And then uh, we, my first job in Egypt was in 2003, working for the Theban Mapping Project. Um, and that was to produce a site management uh, plan for the, for the site and to mitigate the impacts of the natural environment, but also the impacts of the um, tourism on the site. So my specialism really became, I moved from, 
studying the whole range of archaeology into um, more what we call site conservation and site management. So let's let's talk about past preservers. So you obviously have this really interesting career in site management and preservation and Egyptology and um, but then there's past preservers. Um, which is, I think, part of what we want to talk to you, or most of what we want to talk to you about today. Mm-hmm. So where does the creation, where does this idea come from? And we'll talk about what it is, but but where does where does the impetus come from? Well, when I, the first job I mentioned that I took with the Theban Mapping Project in this field, I, I was working in the Valley of the Kings for almost six years, uh, living um, between the UK and Luxor, um, mainly in Luxor and Cairo. So it was an amazing period of time working for Dr. Ken Weeks, one of the most eminent and, and you know, well-respected Egyptologists in the field. And um, it was just, you know, a huge opener into a whole new world. And part of that new world that sort of came to us was the media. Um, the media obviously flocks to Egypt. Uh, documentaries have always been very popular on Egypt. Um, Egypt prior to the revolution then was doing about three to 400 documentaries in the English language alone. Um, so it, a massive business. And so we met lots of media people all the time coming through the Valley of the Kings. And they would ask us questions. You know, they'd see us working. They'd ask us about the tombs we were working on, what we were doing, what the latest discoveries were. And they'd also want to interview my boss, Dr. Ken Weeks, and um, have him on their shows. And sometimes he was too busy or didn't want to do a particular thing. So we ended up doing it. I, I'm talking, when I say we, the co-founder of Past Preservers was um, Kelly Krauss, who was an archaeologist who was working there with me. And so we would do interviews for TV. And we uh, we always joke we did it for, you know, sort of beer money. Um, they would take <laughs> us out for dinner afterwards. And then they kind of ask us even more questions over dinner about, you know, where they should film the next day or who they should talk to or you know, is this true? They've heard such and such a thing about ancient Egypt. Um, because we had our day jobs, we weren't really looking for anything else. But we, when our day jobs sort of came to an end, after five to six years of doing this project, we wanted an excuse to stay in Egypt. Um, we didn't want to come back to grey old England. And so we came up with this idea that we could help these media people make their projects. We could advise them we could um help them find experts we could tell them um, show them where to film we could find stories and excavations for them essentially become a sort of creative fixers there are fixers in the industry that do logistics and permits and these kind of things we didn't want to do that it's not what our skill set was but we felt we could help those fixers and so we did team up with fixers in the beginning. That's how we got our first contracts. Um, and that's how it started, really. It was really nothing more than how do we not go home? <laughs> so, which is, which is you know, I guess it's, that's always a, always a good driver, right? Wanting to stay in a cool place. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, let's, let's talk here for a second about, and I guess before we talk about the success of the company, let's talk about it today. Um, and mm-hmm. I don't know if you kind of if you gave us a date on when it actually started, but so how does it work now? And you know what kind of experts are you looking for? Um, without getting too much into the you know nitty gritty you know details of your business, how does it work financially? Do people have to pay to be listed? Like talk to us through the 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 logistics of it because I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast here in the U.S. Um, 
you know, might be interested in, in getting. Let's say there's a lot of experts and preservationists and historians and archaeologists and folks like that who listen to this. So this actually might be a, a good mm-hmm. entree for people listening who, who might have a skill set that you want. But how does it how does it all kind of come together? How does it work? Well, essentially, I mean, we did st- the, the sort of start date is a little bit gray because, as I said, we, we were both working uh, and helping um, media companies, but we had a full time job at the time. So in the end, I supp- at the, the real beginning, uh, I think the first show we did as a company was a show called Bone Detectives uh, with a, a young archaeologist called Scotty Moore from the US. And um, that was on the beginning of 2008. So, yeah, we have been you know going now for um, 13 years or so. Um, we've done over that time, uh, we just had a bit of a tally the other day. We're almost at 90 projects that have aired. And due to the nature of TV, lots and lots of other projects that, that never made it to, to TV. Um, so essentially what we do and what we've done for, for media companies over the years has changed. Uh, and we've grown in different directions. But at the heart of what we do for the media companies is basically help them with their creative process. Um, but what in the main, it's supplying experts. So whether that expert is to provide the research and development of the stories and often that's done in-house. That's something we do ourselves. Um, or it's the expert that we call a contributing expert or a talking head, which does an interview um, on a TV show. You must have seen them, you know, alongside a host or they, uh, they meet someone at a particular location and, and add to that um, discussion. Um, or we look for also experts who can be hosts or presenters, um, people who want a bit more of a career in TV. So we have, currently we have literally 1,300 people on the expert database. Um, Some of them are more active than others, of course. Some just sign up for one particular job that interests them, and then we don't often hear from them again. Um, As I said, others are more active, um, and we accept all levels. So basically, even if you're starting out in in your academic career and you've just got, you know, you're on your BA we still want to hear from you if you're interested in TV. Um, the TV companies, it's a bit of a myth that they're only looking for people with doctorates. They're not. They're looking mainly for the enthusiasm, the drive, the want to do it. I mean, one of the biggest problems for our, for TV companies is finding academics who want to go on screen. Um, and our job is to do that as well. So we're kind of that halfway house. So we make sure that we find the experts who are interested in doing TV. And I must say that among younger experts now, uh, younger academics, that's not such a barrier. They've grown up in a world of social media and constantly being online, et cetera. So actually, they don't quite have the same relationship with media, which is inter- which is good. I think it's good for everyone. Um, and now is it primarily academics or is it, you know, if there's somebody who works in a museum or somebody who... Uh, is you know uh, a craftsperson who is good at you know restoring something? Is, are you looking sort of for a broad range of people, or what kind of backgrounds and skill sets of those thirteen hundred? Is it primarily people working in academia, or how does the how does that shake out, and what are you looking for? Well, the broadest range as possible, because now even though we started basically as you know, looking mainly at Egyptologists and historians and archaeologists, our clients come to us now who make factual television television shows, and they want a broad range of people. So we need scientists, we need forensic specialists, 
we need explorers. Uh, we have boat builders. You know, we have um, blacksmiths. Um, <laughs> we have DNA specialists. We have, uh, you know, crime specialists. Lots of historians. Lots of authors. Um, we really want to be able to say to our client, look, you know, if you're doing a project and you're looking at, say, World War II or something, that we can provide all of those, you know, the experts you need. We just did a show recently where we provide 40 experts looking at a wide range of the ancient world. So the, the whole thing is we need a viewpoint from different, lots of different angles. Um, so, yeah, the broadest possible spectrum, really, for us. And and I guess you is it sort of in that you act like a talent agency that the does the talent the, you know if if you get listed on past preservers so somebody listening listening mm-hmm. wants to get listed they, they do they pay to be listed or is it that's a free process but then if you connect them that's that's how you guys because it's a business right you guys have to yeah, make money cool. so the 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 company pays you to get access to these people is that kind of how it works. There are two ways, really, that this model can work. We are quite unique. I don't know anyone who does a similar thing in the world of uh, sort of the world of the past that we operate in. But a a similar type of model would be literally talent agencies for uh, modeling, for actors, this kind of thing. A lot of them actually have where you pay a fee up front to be online. Uh, we don't. We looked at that, but we decided we didn't want that because we wanted the largest pool of experts that we could. We didn't want to deter people from signing up when really, you know, there's no guarantee that they will get work. So we didn't want to take that money and unless you know we actually got them a job. Um, so we they sign up. The only we have very limited you know sort of terms and conditions that they sign up to. Um, basically, if we find them work, we take commission. So um, at that point, then there's payment. And that way, as well, our clients get to see a whole range of people that they wouldn't necessarily get to see because they, you know, we never know. Sometimes we send lists to clients and they pick, you know, the same six people. And then suddenly you'll get a client picks another six that you completely random that haven't been picked by anyone before. So it's, you know, it's down to the, uh, the eye of the beholder, right? The t- what the export, the client thinks that they want on their show. And we don't always, we can't judge that, you know. So it's um, important for us to have this wide range, to have different ages, to have different um, groups of people to come from different bu- diverse backgrounds. I mean, that's a big thing for the media currently at the moment, diversity on screen. And, you know, for many years for us, it was even difficult to get women on screen. So it's fantastic that that's changing. And we also, we've been very proactive in putting Indigenous um, archaeologists and historians as well on projects. And one of the side kind of benefits of COVID has been because experts can't travel around the world and filming has continued in in a smaller scale, but it has continued. Film companies, uh, production companies have started to look and say, okay, so who do you have based in Turkey? Who do you have in Egypt? Who do you have in Iran? And so we've been able to get these indigenous local archaeologists and historians, et cetera, on screen for the first time. And I think that could be a sea change in the way that these documentaries are made, much as the way sort of 10 years ago, uh, broadcast news broadcasters decided to hire local people instead of shipping their, you know, reporters around the world, mainly to save money, but I think also because obviously a local expert knows the place a lot better. Um, so it's been, you know, 
I think there are benefits to the fact that we've all been shut down. But um, that's essentially, you know, what we do with our business model is that people don't pay to come on. They then, there's no contract. There's just a, a couple of terms and conditions. But we do also, we have an agency side of the business. So we do represent some of our experts and look after them on a more sort of hands-on basis. So we have what we call our featured experts. And there, there's currently around 80 to 90 of them. And we are their agents. We look after them, do everything, you know, in terms of marketing their profile. They're the ones you publicly see on our website. Um, so we promote them and we put out their um, details to our clients, etc. cetera. Um, and we also have a smaller group of 15, which are presenters and hosts that we look after. Now, that's often because that person either has the skill set to be, not everyone has that skill set to be a presenter or a host. And also, if they want to be that, do you know what I mean? That is a, an investment in time and skills, et cetera. Um, and not, some experts do want to do that, but some are quite happy just being the expert who does a day here and a day there and that kind of thing. So there's a lot of different ways for people to get engaged, obviously. This might be a good place to take a quick break. And then when we come back, talk about um, the you know disposition of these folks between the UK, the US, Europe, and um, maybe some programs that people might be familiar with that you've participated in. And we'll talk about that when we come back on PreserveCast. We want to thank Oliver Pluff & Company for sponsoring today's episode of PreserveCast. Oliver Pluff & Company tells the story of historic American beverages, including teas, spice drinks, cacao, and coffee for historic sites, national parks, gourmet markets, and consumers looking for a great beverage hand-packaged in signature artisan tins. To enjoy a cup of history and learn more about what Oliver Pluff & Company offers, please visit oliverpluff.com. That's Oliver Pluff, spelled P-L-U-F-F dot com. Before we get back to the episode, we're pleased to offer our listeners a 10% off discount on all Oliver Pluff teas, toddies, cacaos, and coffees. Just use the code PRESERVECAST at checkout. PRESERVECAST at checkout over at oliverpluff.com. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. We're talking with Nigel Hetherington, who is the founder and owner of Past Preservers. We've been talking all about how Past Preservers works and who they're looking for, um, how the listings work, um, and that um, you know they're looking for a wide range of diverse voices um, from the heritage preservation academic fields. Um, and I, you know, before we even hit record, I was saying, "Oh, it seems like it's more of a UK European thing." And you said, "Oh, no, 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 you're that's 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 sort of that's not true." Um, so, talk to us about the the makeup um, in terms of, you know, where where are your experts coming from? It's it sounds like maybe there is a big chunk here in the US um, and and I guess globally. So so talk to us about that. Um, our experts actually, I mean, the database. Um, when we analyzed it last time, uh, um, a few months ago, um, even though we didn't plan it this way, it actually is almost equally split between men and women. I think we had 53% female experts. Um, it's also about 48 to 52% UK to US. Um, so 48%, I think, was the UK one. Um, and the the sort of 
that we do have Europeans as well, but we don't work with many European broadcasters. So there isn't a lot of work for them. We are actually just started a relationship with a couple of French broadcasters. So we hope to, you know, sort of venture into those markets. But in the main, the production companies we work with are in the UK or in the US, and they're making programs for both of those markets. Actually, quite a lot of production companies based in the UK make shows for Discovery particularly. Um, and so it doesn't really mean where they're based, the production companies, into who they're making the projects for. Um, so you get US companies who make projects for the UK market as well. So, it, you know, it is, it's, it's a market that's quite integrated. And, you know, I think it's interesting that um, I think American entertainment media – Obviously, there's there's a there's a there is heritage as entertainment, but it seems like that is so much stronger in the UK. Um, the, you know, like the the whole um, you know we've interviewed all the different folks from the Edwardian Farm and the uh, Victorian Farm, and so we've talked to Alex and we've talked to Peter um, and we've talked to Ruth, um, who I went and, to college with, by the way. They went oh, to my really? college. Yeah, yeah. Well, all there at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I'm curious, you know, obviously we, we do documentaries in the U S and people, you know, like those and Netflix and Amazon, there's a, there's a big market for that. But in terms of like sort of the, the live action, um, going back, living in the past, that kind of experience, which seems so popular over there, do you feel like that's, that's coming here? Like heritage's entertainment seems like it's just part and parcel of the British and the English experience. And sometimes I feel like it's not quite as strong here. Do you, do you get that sense, or am I am I wrong in that? No, I mean those shows you referred to, um, the sort of you know living in the past and house histories and this kind of thing, where where people are taken, almost, you know, back in time as such. And there is one called Back in Time. It's wonderful. I love it. And um, there was another one that they did with technology, where they introduced technology each each week and things to people. Um, but yeah, Ruth and Alex and them have made great shows. They're sort of living history, almost you'd call it, they used to call it in the old days. That doesn't seem to be on American TV now. Um, they are quite different markets. The majority of the work we do for US clients is what they refer to as panel shows, which is a different term in the UK. A panel show would literally mean people just sat in a group behind a desk. But what a panel shows in the UK, in the US are things like um, what on Earth, uh, Mysteries of the Deep, um, uh, Secrets in the Eyes, these kind of things, uh, NASA's Unexplained Files, you know, um, William Shatner's Unexplained Files is a new one I just we just worked on recently. Essentially, you know, you have stock footage, you have some kind of um, filming sometimes on location, you have the host or presenter, and then the experts are interviewed separately, not um, on that location, they're interviewed at their own location or in a library or museum set up, and they they will cover you know fourteen to fifteen subjects that are on that season of that show in one or two days, um, and they'll put their input into the subject. Um, those kind of shows are not so popular in the UK. In fact, I can't think of one that yes made in the UK but not on UK TV. Um, it's either Living History. Or archaeology is now back um, on UK TV with the Great British Dig, um, and of course you've got the long-running uh, Digging for Britain with Alice Roberts. That's, we've worked with them as well. 
Um, so that I think it's either real archaeology they're showing, it's living in the past, but we don't tend to do the sort of panel shows. We tend to leave that to the to the US market. But they and are it's trained. funny because I, I was just gonna say, like I, I, I think personally I'm drawn drawn to British TV. I end up watching a lot of it because I like that a heck of a lot better than these sort of boring the panel shows. I, I you know, I mean we're now we're getting into, you know, subjectives and opinions, but they, they just seem sort of they're like the same thing over and over again. Um, and yeah, they, it, they at least the live action stuff, be. you kind of get a different experience, you know? Yeah, I mean, they definitely can be. I mean, we made one um, last uh, two years ago um, called Egypt's Unexplained Files um, with a company called Rare TV out of the UK for the American market, for discovery and for international distribution, as they call it. And what we tried to do with that, because we were involved from the very beginning, so we did the experts, but I also worked as a story consultant with them. So what we tried to do was, even though we were taking well-known stories and, and uh, um, parts of Egyptian history, we had literally 60 sort of subjects to cover over 10 episodes. What we would do is that we would you know, monitor the press to see what was going on in terms of new discoveries and kind of feed that into it. We would then put the ex interview the expert and find out what the latest feeling, you know, sort of theories and what the latest thoughts are and what the latest research are on that particular subject to bring it really up to date. So that I've, and we felt really proud of because I mean, even the, the lots of the academic community as well also said, oh, you know, this was really up to date. It was it was not just sort of you know who who killed Tut kind of thing. It was, you know, this is what we know, this is where we are with the, you know, the research, etc. So I think panel shows can do that, definitely. But the thing is, often broadcasters will try and go for the subject matters that bring the viewers in. And that tends to be the same topic repeated, sadly. Mm -hmm. Egypt, Hitler. Uh... Charles. <laughs> yes, sharks. Sharks, <laughs> Titanic. If you could, you know, we always joke about between producers and stuff, you know, if you can get, um, you know, a shark on the Titanic with Hitler and uh, an Egyptian mummy or something, you're you're made for life, right? Yeah. Um, the And dinosaurs, yes. We have to throw in dinosaurs as well. Um, but, yeah, there, there are these subjects that are perennial and obviously there's a huge public fascination. They do change over time as well. Uh, Bermuda Triangle used to be the biggest thing ever, and no one really mentions that anymore. Um, you know, crop circles had their day. So I think there's a rotation uh, of these ideas. Um, but it also is interesting from an academic point of view as well. It's like why those things get remembered as well, you know. I was trying to pitch to a, a producer recently, uh, one of the work of uh, one of my professors at UCL, Beverly Butler, is memory studies, you know, and it's how we decide what to remember as a society. Right. And, of course, it's a very academic discipline, but I think it's also fascinating for TV because, you know, there are many, many disasters worse than the Titanic, you know what I mean? And there are more despots in history than Hitler and that kind of thing, you know, but we choose to focus on a handful of these cases. Maybe it is the fact that we have to filter and let some go, right? But it, I think the media has a huge part to play in that. Um, and I teach occasionally at the French University in Cairo when I'm living there. And they have a master's program in cultural heritage. And I do a whole section of 
of, on the media and how the media views the past. And, you know, we, we talk about that, why, you know, the media is fascinated with King Tutankhamun, for instance, you know, and that goes right back to the discovery and the fact that Howard Carter did an exclusive deal with the Times of London and the other newspapers had no access, so they created stories. They just created things up. So they made up the curse, you know what I mean? It's just, you know, there are roots in, Egypt, in Egyptian history of curses. There are what, what are called curse inscriptions. But the whole, you know, pharaohs were so powerful, they didn't have to have curse inscriptions. So it was only you and me, we would have them on our tombs, right? Because we want to make sure that no one came in and destroyed our tomb. But if you're the pharaoh, people are meant to be terrified of you. <laughs> so they're not, you know, there's no point in putting the warning sign on the tomb. Well, that, that sounds like a uh, historical memory would be a good show to pitch. Um, and yeah. obviously yeah. Americans are... We, we grapple with the memory of things, particularly our civil war. Um, so uh, I, I guess um, before we come to a conclusion here, um, what's, what's, um, what's next for past preservers? Where, where are you, where are you headed? Is it just continued growth? Is it, um, you know, are you, where do you, where do you hope to see the company go um, and, and, and I also suppose it's a good time, you know, we'll, we have a, a link in the show notes to the website, but mm. give yourself a plug, let people know where they can follow you and, and all that kind of thing. But where is, where is Past Preservers headed? Well, we've often thought about different directions that we can go in. I think the main focus for us is always going to be the people. It's always going to be the experts. Um, and that is our world and that's the world that we came from and we know that. So I think that's going to be, we'll just continue to build on that. But I would like to be as involved as possible in production of shows. That doesn't mean we'll make our own necessarily, but we are teaming up with two producers at the moment uh, to work on uh, development ideas. So they will partner with us. So we will feed them, you know, sort of the ideas and the research and everything that we put together with our experts so we can develop our own shows that would be you know to have an involvement from the very beginning in a process right through to the end uh you know that would be the ultimate goal um we often get involved in shows quite early on but i think we've only done one or two where we've been involved from the very beginning to the end um so i think we can definitely help them make better shows that way plus we can also get new ideas and new um avenues on on, on screen but i'd also like to work move into more in general the sort of experts of the factual uh, looking at factual tv so i think you know that yes we're past preservers and we did focus on the stories of the past but because our clients want scientists because they want paleontologists because they want you know all sorts of different people for their shows crime specialists this kind of thing we've had to branch out into those places so even though we're not going to change the name we would like to be sort of a one-stop shop for all sort of factual tv experts well you've got uh you got your work cut out for you but that that's a good <laughs> thing that's i guess that's uh that, that guarantees business so if people want to find past preservers they want to find you where can they follow you on social media that kind of stuff yeah to register there's a very simple form we have on our website at pastpreservers.com there's also some information about what you'll need before you start the process. In the main, you need your CV, you'll need pictures, but all in, more importantly than anything, you will need the video. So you will need a small clip, um, a very short clip, two to three minutes, 
which is a sort of bio video, I would say. If you've got TV experience, some people submit uh, to us um, what's called, you know, a showreel, which are clips of shows. But in the main, producers do like to see you and to to get to know you and know your what your interests and things. So a, what we call a video CV or video bio um, is essential. And then there's a little form you fill in, and that that's fine. That's that's the process. We also put jobs up on on that website um, as well as they come out. Um, but we're on you know the usual social media media channels like uh, Twitter and Instagram, etc., and YouTube. All under pass preservers. If you Google pass preservers as one word, they come up. Um, and we do post our jobs on there. We do post tips on you know, how to get involved in TV and events and that kind of thing. So before you go, the most difficult question we ask of anyone who comes on PreserveCast, your favorite historic place or site? Well, it's got to be the Valley of the Kings. I mean, it's, um, you know, I worked there for a very long time. Uh, it is an amazingly special place. Um, Luxor in general, I think, is, you know, one of these amazing historical places. And Egypt has become part of me. You know, I have a, a son now from Egypt. I um, I have a home in Egypt. It's become part of the fabric of who I am. So that has changed. It changed me uh, a lot. You know, I spent half of the year there. Um, so I think, yeah, I think Egypt's got under my skin and it, it's, you know, part of my life now. Yeah, it sort of reminds me of that Churchill quote, which may be a good way to end a, end a conversation with a, an Englishman, which is... Uh, <laughs> Uh, we shape our buildings and thereafter they shape us. Mm. Uh, and in some mm. ways, I suppose, uh, Egypt has shaped you in some ways. Um, and, and I guess we're fortunate for that, uh, that the Egyptian experience has brought you to past preservers and past preservers to us. And um, wish you all the best and hope to have you back in the future, maybe when you're, uh, you cross the pond and we can talk here in the U.S. That'll be wonderful. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation, and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.